Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made. We rejoice and we are glad in it. Pray that you bless our time today. Uh, just open up our eyes to the ways we can participate better in seeing your will in heaven done here on earth. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're joining, thank you for joining us. My name is Paul. I'm privileged to serve as pastor of Victory Church of Charlottesville, where we exist to see people reconciled to God and to each other. And we are blessed with the community that together we get to uh, participate well as we just prayed in the God's will in heaven being done here on earth. And imperfect people, no doubt, serving a perfect God who's so gracious enough to allow us to partner with him. And we've been in a sermon series all month entitled Justice. And we decided a couple of weeks out of the month to have conversations in particular areas as to what it might look like for justice to be pursued um, here in our sphere of influence. Um, and before we get into it, happy Father's Day to every father, uh, to those um, who perhaps don't have biological children, but you are fathering. Certainly, uh, we salute you. We appreciate you. We honor you uh, and thank God for your efforts every single day. And as Isaiah 1 at 17 says, we are all certainly learning to do right in that regard. And what a blessing we have to, to do so. I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Williams, a brother, a friend, an incredible educator and scholar. And, um, and I'm grateful that he's here with us. And so I'm gonna read a little bit about him and leave most of our time to hearing from him. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Joseph Williams is an associate professor in the Counselor Education Program at the University of Virginia. He's a faculty affiliate with, New with Youth Next, the UVA Center to Promote Effective Youth Development, and with the Center for Race and Publication Public Education in the South. Prior to joining the faculty at UVA, he was an assistant professor at George Mason University. Dr. Williams earned his PhD in counselor education and supervision from the University of Iowa and his MS in clinical mental health counseling from Minnesota State University. He has over 10 years of practical experience counseling children, adolescents, and families in both school and mental health settings. His primary line of research focuses on identifying the protective factors and underlying processes that contribute to the academic resilience of K through 12 students of color and those from low income backgrounds. His secondary line of interest includes anti-bias and social justice training practices for K-12 counselors, educators, and other helping professionals, including law enforcement officers. In addition to publishing scholarly articles and book chapters in these areas, he also consults with school districts, communities, associations, and corporations to improve diversity, inclusion, and equity efforts and engage people in productive dialogue and action. And he has been a blessing to me personally since we were able to grab him a few years ago here at UVA, both in the ivory tower and outside of it. He's a gift to us all. Dr. Williams, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Appreciate it. Uh, I think I think a great place to start is uh, we've read the you know your formal bio, but just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so born and raised in uh, Kansas City, Kansas. Uh, that's that's home for me. I was there for um, the first eighteen years of my life until I um, went off to college. I started at a, a small school, Kobe Community College, where I uh, played basketball. Uh, very small town. Shout out to Kobe. Uh, and then from there, I ended my um, collegiate uh, basketball career at Minnesota State. And so kind of did a Midwest tour. Um, maybe the most important thing uh, to know about me is that um, I'm husband of a beautiful wife, uh, Erica Williams, and I have three amazing kids, Eli, Autumn, and Naomi, who uh, who keep me busy. And, and so um, family life is really important. So. so great. And your kids are blessings to ours as well. They miss being in school together for sure. 
Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you all for joining. Olivia, Colleen, Hurley, Joanne Boyle, Audrey, good to have you. Lon, Irene, Ed, we encourage you guys to ask some questions uh, as we go along. So, so Dr. Williams, I, I shared about your bio, um, and I'm just curious, maybe as a kickoff question, given your area of study and your expertise and um, all of your experiences over the years in education, uh, what do you see in counseling and education uh, as related to justice, which has been our theme, or perhaps the lack thereof? Yeah, so, so one of the things I can, I think, speak to as maybe the lack thereof. So as you, as you mentioned in my bio, I study academic or educational resilience. So basically, I study kids who live in poverty, um, but excel academically and try to find out why, why that's the case and what are the protective factors and process that helps and how do we use that to inform um, interventions. So one of the things that I see a lot within kind of education is, um, just to be blunt, um, various forms of racial inequality in terms of student outcomes, right? And so that could be test scores, grades, um, AP enrollment rates, identification of gift and talent programs, uh, college going rates, suspensions, and you can kind of keep going. Uh, and so I believe that there's a lot of factors that um, lead to racial inequality in terms of student outcomes in K through 12 education. The two that I study the most is poverty and racial uh, discrimination. And so when we're looking about, when we're thinking about concentrated poverty um, and how it impacts student performance, there's usually three ways in which it really impacts student performance. Um, students who actually live in poverty, typically have limited access to academic and social support, such as tutors, uh, academic enrichment opportunities, uh, summer learning experiences, homework support outside of the school. Uh, the second way in which poverty uh, negatively impacts student performance is oftentimes these students are actually exposed to conditions that, um, that influence their health, safety, and well-being. And that could be limited access to healthcare or food instability or unfavorable mm -hmm. housing conditions or undressed medical concerns. I mean, the list goes on and on. And the third primary way in which poverty uh, negatively impacts students' performance uh, is that oftentimes parents um, oftentimes don't have access to high levels of social capital, right? Uh, because there's not a lot of um, maybe capital in terms of uh, businesses, uh, partner and organizations, associations within their community. And so that's kind of one of the ways or one of the pockets of, I believe to be uh, injustice that actually impacts students, so poverty. And the second one is looking at racial discrimination. And what I typically study is um, the different way in which black and brown kids are actually treated by teachers and school administrations, right? And so there was a study that just came out of the University of Michigan a number of years ago that said that, you know what, across the nation, uh, they did this huge survey that close to 87% to 94% of black adolescents experienced reporting discrimination of some sort by teachers. And this was anything from um, being graded unfairly to being discouraged from joining join uh, advanced level courses to being ignored when they raised their hands, uh, to receive more teacher referrals, subjected to harsher punishments. And so I, I look at those different factors in terms of um, how it negatively impacts uh, student performance in schools. Um, and then, then I think about who are the students within those contexts who seem to thrive despite those adversities? And what can we learn from them, right? What can we learn about their social structures and support systems about the things that really help them overcome um, some of the, the challenges related to being not only a student of color, but also being a student of color who lives in poverty or relative poverty. That, that is, first of all, thank you for studying such an important area. It's, it's yeah. so relevant, so critical. And Selena, Dr. Selena just referenced the same thing. Thank you for studying this. It's, um, and, and, and even as you shared, I started thinking about just the gospel imperative uh, for us to address 
to acknowledge, to name, to address these these issues. And uh, uh, last week we referenced the scripture in Psalm uh, 82 and 2 that, that where the psalmist says, how long will you defend the unjust? And then later in Psalm 106 and 3 says, blessed are those who act justly. And as I listen to you and I, I listen to the the stats was that 87% of black and brown students who were treated uh, uh, unfairly or inappropriately. And, and I thought, gosh, these things persist. So in what ways do you see that we maybe unintentionally or intentionally defend um, the unjust? And, and then on the flip side, what are some ways that you see we can, uh, again, as a gospel imperative, uh, that we can act justly in these spaces? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great, great, great question. Um... When I think about uh, ways in which we intentionally or unintentionally um, defend uh, the unjust, uh, I, I think you, you you answered it actually as you kind of prefaced the question. I think naming the problem. So one of the mm. things I sometimes um, mention to my students is uh, how do you solve a problem that you don't know exists? And it's really a trick mm. question because you don't, right? Uh, you don't. Uh, and when I think about the tremendous power of actually naming a problem, I think about, well, as society, how have we been explaining the racial disparities that we see in student outcomes. And if we like take it way back, um, oftentimes it was a genetic explanation, right? That we see mm-hmm. that black and brown kids are doing so poorly in all these different metrics of achievement in comparison to white students, because genetically they're just inferior, right? They're intellectually inferior. They don't have the capability. They don't have the bandwidth to actually engage in some of these things. Um, and thankfully, thanks to God, uh, a large part of society, I believe, has actually moved away from that explanation of the problem of why we mm-hmm. actually see disparities. But unfortunately, we, we seem to be stuck on um, not a genetic explanation, uh, but more of a behavioral or cultural explanation, right? That, you know what, we see these disparities in student outcomes because they lack the motivation or they come from single parent family structures or uh, they're not really interested or the parents really don't care about education. And so we use these kind of behavior and cultural explanations to explain why we see such disparities and uh, achievement. And I think that actually just serves to perpetuate the problem. It actually ignores the systems in which students function, mm. but actually data actually shows um, or a really good source or a contributing factor to the problems that we actually see. Um, so when we control for class, when we control for family education level, when we control for family structure, we still see disparities as it relates to race and achievement across those different domains. And so you know, Ibram Kennedy is one of the scholars that I read. Um, he, he uses a really good analogy that I'll remix uh, in terms of explanations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a huge basketball fan, right? And so one of the things that we see a lot now is, uh, you know, which team is the better team in Los Angeles? Is it the Los Angeles Lakers or the Los Angeles Clippers, right? And so mm-hmm. when debate, if I was to tell you that the Clippers beat the Lakers 10 times out of 10, you only really have two possible explanations, right? That either the Clippers are a superior team or the rules of the game seem to favor the Clippers, right? We take that same analogy and we apply mm-hmm. education, it's the same thing. If we say that, you know what, consistently, since we've been measuring academic outcomes, um, students of color, particularly black and brown students have lagged behind their white peers. Um, so again, we have two ways of explaining that. Um, either, again, white, their white peers are just intellectually superior or culturally or behaviorally or their ethic or their values or their morals are just superior to black and brown kids and black and brown uh, cultures and communities, or the rules of the game seem to actually privilege um, white kids in, in, in this context of education mm-hmm. that we're talking about today, right? So now we start talking about privilege, right? And, and white privilege and what is that? And, 
we're talking about these unearned advantages and benefits. And now it gets really sticky, right? Because now we have to start, we start, we have to start wrestling with um, maybe some uncomfortable realities that we see. And so I think anytime we pit the blame solely on students or their families or their culture as why we see these discrepancies, I think we're defending an unjust system. So it may not be a group of individuals, but it's a system that actually works to advantage some and disadvantage others. And so it's that unjust system that I think we unintentionally um, defend. And most of the time it's because, yeah, it's uncomfortable to kind of think about other alternate explanations. Um, and, and with that, and so I think you have to correctly name and understand the issue before you can then think about ways in which we can act justly so that we don't put all of our energy and support into like these individual programs and services that only address kids, right? Let's teach them character development. Let's teach them to do this and this and this. But we never talk about how we should uh, do equity audits on policies and procedures within schools that may inadvertently negatively impact students of color and things of that nature. So I think having a clear understanding of what the problem is and how it contributes to it, I think helps us to think about how we could act justly. And there's a resource that everyone can Google, um, ACA, American Council Associations, they have the advocacy competencies. And really it's a framework and it tells you, or it talks about the different competencies and strategies of how to actually advocate with and on behalf of students and their families, right? From student empowerment to student advocacy, to community collaboration, to looking at systemic things and policy. And so there's a lot of information in terms of how we can think about um, addressing some of the systemic issues that actually impact students. And again, when I say systemic, I, I try not to like use like very, you know, academic terms and all that. I'm talking about like literally policies and procedures that we can actually trace back to show that, you know what, some students are being affected more so than others. And so how do we actually address those? Um, I think it's an important thing to think about. Man, that's so great. And so many layers uh, yeah. to that. But I appreciate yeah. your saying to name it first, like knowing what it is we're dealing with and then moving forward. And speaking of naming, Tori Jackson named something that um, she's asking you to, to maybe speak to a bit. And that is mm -hmm. the effects that the lack of representation, even in a classroom, um, both through educators and material, like yeah. what kind of impact that can have on students. Yeah, you know, there's, there's new social science out around uh, what's called the race match effect. And basically, hmm. you might have seen these um, NPRs done several studies, but basically it shows that, you know what, when students have teachers who look like them, they tend to actually do better, right? Now, now that's an interesting, like, scenario of why that is, right? Uh, and it actually, there's follow-up questions that may be uncomfortable, right? Um, and again, we're still kind of theorizing and understanding why is that. And some say that, you know what, because when we talk about like implicit and um, explicit biases and things of that nature, that teachers of color tend to both implicitly and explicitly have higher expectations for students. And those expectations, they play out in, again, how much time we give students to answer questions, the type of questions that we give students. So all these different ways in which teachers interact with students. Also research shows that when we're talking about the race match effect, that oftentimes these teachers are coming from similar backgrounds and experiences of students of color. And so they can incorporate that into their teaching and into the curriculum so that it's meaningful and it's more engaging for to students. So there's a lot of different ways in which we can explain the race match effect. Um, now, if I'm a white educator, um, that could be somewhat um, challenging or uncomfortable. Like, so what does that say? Does it mean that as a white educator, I'm unable to actually reach black and brown kids? No, not necessarily. But it just says that, you know what, maybe we should be thinking about um, more culturally responsive ways in which we reach kids. 
Uh, and that's just, again, on an individual level, but within school systems, maybe we should think about how do we incentivize um, ways to actually increase black and brown teachers? Do we pay them a higher salary? Do we pay them a sign-in bonus? Like, so now we're talking about issues of equity, which again, hmm. another conversation, but if you don't understand equity, it seems like it's reverse discrimination, right? If you don't understand like the fairness concept of actually how it works. And so I think there is a lot of research that actually shows that um, representation is actually extremely important, not just in curriculum, but also who's delivering the curriculum. You know, I did a study before yeah. I came to, um, uh, to UVA where we looked at representation and we, we, uh, a huge county, I won't name the location, but we had a 33,000 sample population. And basically we wanted to say does, we wanted to ask if, does racial um, uh, composition of a school impact achievement in any way? And what we found is that um, the more diverse a school is, um, the better students did, but not all students, right? Um, the better white students did, right? And that was interesting. And so we were defining mm -hmm. diversity as equal representation across the board, right? So 25% white, 25% black, 25% brown, you know? Um, and so when students were in more equally diverse uh, schools, K through 12, they tended to do better if they were white. If they were black or brown, they actually tended to actually do worse. And then there was actually mm -hmm. a flip side of it, right? That when students who were black and brown were in schools that were predominantly black and brown, they tended to actually do better, right? And, and so again, it's like, uh, we, ha we have to wrestle with that. Like, what, what does that actually mean? Um, hmm. Support segregation, but I mean, what do these results tell us? And what are some of the nuances that we need to understand? And so I think to Tori's question, it's um, kind of a, a, the race match effect is kind of a relatively new area within, within education that we're trying to understand what, what is that, what's, what's behind some of those subtle differences. And there's just, things we can theorize about, but no one really knows for, for sure. But it's um, it's something to consider, at the very least, mm. something to consider. You, you talked about comfort <laughs> and, and how uncomfortable it might be to ask some of these questions and dig into it. And this goes down a different path. So maybe I'll hold that question that I have and go to some that we have here. Because um, I think you do a really good job in spaces where it can be uncomfortable, but to still go there in a way that produces some positive impacts. So I was going to come back to how you do that, but but a couple of questions just came in that I want to acknowledge. And I think you spoke to some of this already it's from Siobhan Saul, um, and she's asking about what equity, and, and you spoke to this a little bit in, in, in some of what you just shared, but what is, if there's anything more to add, what does equity within the school or classroom look like? Yeah, so, so I think one thing that, which might be helpful, which was helpful for me, was distinguishing equity um, versus equality, right? Um, Equity, I mean, equality is more sameness, that everyone gets the same things. Equity is, is more about fairness. And so um, in theory, within schools, we want students to all reach the same goal, right? Equity comes in is that some students are going to need more services and programs, more, you know, that are equitable in order to help them meet that goal. And so um, hmm. that could look like um, enrichment programs that are geared towards black and brown students, right? Students who have, who have historically been kind of underrepresented, who have historically lacked access to certain resources and things of that nature. So it could be services, it could be programs, um, it could be other opportunities that some students get and other students don't get, right? So mm -hmm. in the context of school, it's, um, it's challenging. I'll, when I talk to teachers, I oftentimes say, if, if you're not uncomfortable and you have issues around equity, you're not having the right conversation. Because the reality is, is that even mm -hmm. are more progressive, uh, forward-thinking, uh, white middle-class families, they believe in equity. And then when it actually comes up, then it becomes, well, well, wait a minute, my students aren't getting that service? Why is that? Is it because we're white? 
Yeah, it could be if it's race-based equity, right? But you have to understand like a history of a lack of access and participation and things of that nature in order to understand that there's a need to actually provide more services to certain populations. And so it's a, it's a, it's a tricky conversation, but more, more so it could be programs and services that are just geared towards um, uh, students that have been historically underrepresented. And again, it's not reverse discrimination. It's not... Um, reverse racism, because we give some students more than others. It's about understanding that um, we all started different playing fields. And I have a, a, a visual slide that's a really great way of actually thinking about equity that I think it, it helps make sense. But it's really, um, again, it's, it's yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a concept that, again, it's, it's, it's difficult to think about, um, depending on who you are. But again, part of it is, again, services and programs that just serve a certain population. And then that's okay, right? We have to say that that's mm. okay. You know, you spoke to this question from Jonathan a little bit, too, but I'm going to ask it and maybe wrap my question with it, too, if that's OK, Jonathan. Thank you for this. Um, but he's asking about that, what he calls the usual response by whites about unfairness or uh, uh, affirmative action. And then he also references the Asian population as a model minority. And I want to kind of tie what I was asking earlier about knowing that you do that well, um, kind of what does that look like when you're engaging these spaces where those kinds of moments come up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know if I do it well, um, but I do it. And maybe that's the, the first part, right, that we kind of mm. those uncomfortable mm. truths. Um, and so sometimes I use humor to introduce what I'm going to talk about. Um, other times I'm just transparent. It's similar to my, my counseling approach where um, if it's in my head, um, I, I usually say it because it's probably in my audience's head as well, right? So I try to use perspective mm. taking to think about, okay, I just said that, you know what, um, black and brown teachers seem to be more effective with black and brown students. If I was a white educator, how would I take that? And I take that information and I think about it as I'm actually presenting the information. And then I actually speak out of how I would feel that that would be unfair or this or that nature. And again, part of it is just to say that, you know what, um, I can understand how you might be perceiving this information, but part of like, I guess, let me frame, uh, cause oftentimes we, we, we kind of guise this in, in terms of like courageous conversations. Um, why do they need to be courageous? Uh, because this is some uncomfortable, mm. right? And so part of it is understanding that like, this is a part of the process. Like your uncomfortableness is really a great thing uh, and you have to wrestle through it. And we can wrestle through it together. But if you're not uncomfortable, why would you change? Um, if you're not mm. uncomfortable, why would you think critically about something differently? And so sometimes it's, it's uh, I, I guess, the, the, the just let me see how to, how to actually frame that. Um, it's necessary. Uh, the first few years when I was actually doing a lot of this work, I was trying to actually talk about racism and systemic, you know, uh, institutional forms of racism and, and bias and things. Like that. And I was trying to do it in a way that's very palatable, a way in which I felt that white educators and administrators in particular and families could actually receive. But I actually found that to be ineffective. Um, um, mm. And I found that it's actually is more effective, to be honest. And if I stir the pot, I stir the pot. But that's a good thing, because what we see um, you know, one of the things I do with consultation is that I design, implement, and evaluate um, training programs. What we see is that, you know what, when you're delivering information, you can give someone all the stats, all the statistics, all the data, all the research, and it's still not going to change their behavior. Oftentimes, it still doesn't mm -hmm. change their mind. What, what, what changes people, what starts to actually increase that process is the emotional connection to what's actually being said. And so I find that uncomfortableness is a a human emotion that we need to experience in order to connect with these concepts, because you can explain away statistics and research studies and things of that nature, but it's hard to actually explain away those feelings, right? Uh, and again, so I'm actually 
I, I joke with my wife that oftentimes I call myself like an agitator that I actually go into these spaces, mm-hmm. stir up things. Uh, and that's because mm-hmm. I want the conversation to continue once I leave. Um, Cause it shouldn't be this token one conversation that we have, but it should be, again, something that we wrestle with and we struggle and we go back and forth with. And so I'm not sure if I actually answered your question, uh, both Jonathan or Paul, but hopefully yeah. somewhere in between there. No, definitely. Definitely. I thought, this is, I thought about the agitator and our washing machines, right? And how oh, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, need yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. There's a question from Eric Kelly. I'm not sure where this fits in your sort of research uh, agenda, but he's asking about gender match. Um, and if you think there's a gender match effect also. You know, I don't do as much research in that area, but what I do know is that uh, when, we, when we look at certain student outcomes, um, when you control for like a lot of variables in terms of class, environment, things of that nature, that um, students who attend all boys school tend to do better. Girls mm-hmm. who attend all girls schools tend to do better. Um, now that's not to say that we shouldn't, um, that we should actually separate based on gender, but that is to say that there is something there that I just don't have enough to speak about uh, today, but there is something there about, yeah, having uh, a, you know, a, uh, a male educator, if you're a male, being in a school where your peers are all males, administration, teachers, support, staff, and the same thing with um, young ladies and females. Um, so there's something there. I don't know the nuances of, why, of what that is, but there is a gender match effect as well. Uh, but you can oftentimes view it when you're looking at um, oftentimes private or charter schools that are uh, all boys or, or all, uh, all girls schools that those kids actually seem to do pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Angel chimes in coming back to sort of the, the conversation around uh, racial differences in education. And she actually drills down a little bit more locally and, 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 and wants to know more about your thoughts on, and, and Angel, I'm assuming you're referencing the New York Times article, I think it was a couple of years ago now that talked about the racial divide and it hindering um, mm-hmm. success here in our community. And if you're, you want to know your thoughts on the, efforts toward that end in our city, whether it's sufficient and, um, and, and sort of our progress in that regard locally. Yeah, so um, I, thank you, Andrew, for that question. Um, so one of the things, so the racial divide article that came out in the New York Times, it wasn't surprising, right? Because it's, a, it's not mm-hmm. unique to Charlottesville, it's a natural, mm-hmm. natural trend across the United States. Uh, what was a little bit surprising, or at least disconcerting as a, a father of three is how wide those disparities are, right? So if the national level, they're like this, when you think about like places like Charlottesville or other places, Harvard, that are kind of situated within, um, you know, oftentimes low-income urban communities, uh, the disparities are, they're exacerbated. Um, so that's the issue. Um, the schools, you know, I work with the schools, so I'm trying to be, be careful. Um, right. <laughs> yes, so, um, I believe there are efforts underway. I've been in, uh, I've been privileged to be in a couple of the kind of behind the scenes um, uh, inner workings of actually trying to address it. Uh, I just think that progress is slow um, and it's a heavy lift, uh, but there are short term and both long term goals that we can do. And I think that, I think the education system here is actually moving in the right direction. I mean, we just, you have to think about how long this has been an issue and now we're really trying to address it. We're really trying to grab the bulls by the horns. And it's just, it's just a process. This is going to take time. Hmm. Um, there's equity committees that are built in within Charlottesville city schools. There's a, a larger equity council that's uh, made of not only school administrators, but also um, community members. So I think those are great starts. Uh, I know at Charlottesville high school, they have uh, getting rid of the tracking system. 
at uh, in the middle schools and elementary schools, they're actually um, opening up gifted and education to all students. So I think there's these things that um, the school is actually doing this on the right track. Uh, and again, could they be doing more? I'm, I'm sure, um, but they are doing something. Uh, I have a really good relationship with Denise Johnson, who is a, a equity supervisor for the city, and she she gets it. She's from Charlottesville. She went through the schools here, and again, so we're we're, we're um, I think the school is in the right direction. Uh, but I think us as community members, uh, as advocates, have to continue to hold them accountable. We have to continue to use the power of our vote when we're thinking about school board administrators and others who are in positions of power that they can leverage on behalf of students. And so, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that it took uh, the march of, you know, the, the events of August mm -hmm. 12th to bring these things to light. Um, and so we were a little bit behind the eight ball, I think in some ways, but I think um, there's tons of, I, I know for a fact, there's tons of like other states and counties that are now looking to Charlottesville in terms of how are you doing that? Mm. Do you help us with this? And so I think again, while on the outside looking in, it seems like it's a slow, a slow gain, which it, it is, uh, there are things that we're doing that other counties are trying to actually emulate at the same time. And so, um, yeah, so so I, I would say that, you know, they're, they're working on the issue and they seem to be genuine with it. So not a check off the box kind of token things. Let me window dress so that the community will be quiet, but they are trying to actually think about um, how to evaluate, how to hold themselves accountable. I know they're partnering with the UVA Data Science Center to actually see are the interventions and services they're using, is it actually moving the needles or is it just kind of not doing much and how can we address it? And so I do give them some credit for um, trying to address uh, some of the issues that have been kind of decades, uh, if not hundreds mm -hmm. of years in the progress here. This is so great. If you're just joining us, we are talking about justice, particularly in education as a part of a larger sermon series uh, where we're talking about how we bear God's image well in pursuing justice, seeking justice, uh, and, and so today we're talking about what it looks like in education here with Dr. Joseph Williams. It's actually 1130, um, but if you're okay, we'll do a few more minutes and, yeah. and, and, and get a couple more questions in, uh, one of which I think will be particularly um, uh, exciting for those who are viewing. So, um, but Earth Knight has this question. Earth from New York um, is asking about your, your studies that you referenced earlier around students of color that are still able to overcome the negative odds uh, that are stacked against them. If you can talk a little bit about what you found that contributes to said success. Yeah, you know, and that's the interesting thing. When I first started the journey of academic resilience, trying to understand what are the factors that um, increase someone's ability to overcome adversity and to be successful, uh, I thought I was gonna come up with all these like new innovative ideas and, and variables and factors and that, you know what, uh, Oprah Winfrey was going to give me a call because she was going to want to interview me about it <laughs> and all this good stuff. Uh, but what I actually found is that uh, there, there are no secret ingredients, right? Uh, but there are common ingredients, right? There are common things that these students seem to have in common that uh, helps them to actually to achieve. And so a few things, um, again, nothing new. There's a book that I like to reference a lot, uh, Ann Matson, who writes uh, Ordinary Magic, right? That, that again, it's just very ordinary stuff. Uh, uh, positive adult relationships, right? And it's not just the relationship, but it's actually what they get from the relationship, right? A sense of motivations, a sense of security, um, a sense of like identity that they can wrestle with things. You see um, peer relationships that are, we call it peer social capital, that uh, peers provide emotional and other tangible forms of support as, as their friends are actually going through different things. A peer may be really good at English, but really struggle in math, but they have a friend who's really good at math, uh, but struggles in English. And so they're supporting each other. And so we see 
like peer social capital within schools. Uh, we see teacher capital, right? Uh, forms of social capital. We call it critical relationships or critical capital that teachers leverage resources to actually help students, provide them um, a lot of different uh, opportunities and resources. Uh, same thing within family systems, right? Uh, so I've never met a functional family, right? Uh, but even like my dissertation mm -hmm. around uh, African-American students in low-income single-parent households. And we see that, you know what? There's tons of resources and things that parents were doing to actually encourage their kids' academic efforts and to really engage them. And so while the parents may not have had a lot of formal education, they would do things like uh, if the kids brought home bad report cards, they would give them spankings, right? Uh, and now I'm not advocating whether you should spank your kid or not, but it wasn't really the spankings that did it, right? It was about the message that the spankings communicated. That you know what, mom or the dad actually really cares about education, so I better get my act together. Uh, mm -hmm. They would actually... Um, make sure that there was room or space within their house for their kids actually to study and do work, even though they maybe, maybe they couldn't actually help them. So you see all these little things, tons of things that parents were doing, even single parents within their homes that were actually contributing to their, their child's success, as well as at the community level as well. Um, rec mm -hmm. center, after school opportunities and things of that nature. And what was really interesting is that um, when you look at the school literature in terms of like parent involvement, community involvement, the ways in which parents uh, were serving their kids and communities were serving their kids didn't really match what mainstream definitions of uh, involvement were. And so we see that, you know what, there's a lot of ways in which mm -hmm. communities and families and even peer networks are supporting kids that kind of go under the radar within the schools. And so for me, it was like, oh, well, how do we bring a lot of this, a lot more of this stuff to light? Uh, but then it goes back to, again, our earlier conversation in terms of like how we define the problem. So if we see single family mm -hmm. homes is the problem, if we see mm -hmm low-income, poor communities is the problem. I'm never going to look to them for solutions, right? Because mm -hmm. they have a problem. Why would I look to them for, for solutions? And so a lot of my research shows is that, you know what? There's solutions, there's assets embedded within even the dis most dysfunctional family. Even with the most um, economically depraved community, there's resources and assets there that actually kids draw on in order to actually overcome some mm -hmm. of the issues that they have. And so we have to think about how do we look to kids, uh, their families, their communities, and their schools as parts of the solution, right? That they actually have something to bring. So it's not us providing them with the intervention, it's more so learning about what they're doing already and how do we can do that more on the school level, right? How do we actually increase that so that it's a part of our policies and things of that nature, how we think about what we fund and how we distributed resources and wealth and things of that nature. And so I don't know if that addresses your question, but there's just tons of literature in terms of like the protective factors um, that um, help kids overcome adversity. And so my research started to move from helping kids uh, defy the odds. And now I'm looking more from a systemic part of how we help change the odds so that more kids can actually be successful. Um, so it's a great question, tons of literature. Uh, I, I do some work on that and Matson does some work on that. Um, yeah, so you can just Google some of that information. It's really helpful in terms of informing policies as well as practices, practical strategies. Well, look, Taylor's paging Oprah right now. So uh, oh, cool. we got it. <laughs> Um, and, and clearly we need some more time on this. So I'm yeah. going to uh, try to wrap up, but I think, I think a part two might be in order, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Can you, something that strikes me, and, and, and it's why in part we're having these conversations, right? Last week, Dr. Brackney in law, this week in education, and, and maybe we'll do some more, is the language that we use in the marketplace that may not cite chapter and verse, but, but very much as a part of who we are as followers of Jesus is coming from a place of faith. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can share just some scriptures that you stand on um, that 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 it kind of provide an impetus, if you will, for for the work that you do related to justice in education. 
Yeah, I appreciate the question. I think it's a great question to, um, to end with. Uh, so my whole notion of justice or what social justice is, it comes from a biblical perspective, right? And so it's not uncommon for me to find myself in spaces where everyone's for social justice, but my definition of it looks a lot different because it's from a Bible standpoint, right? And so I have a really good pastor friend of I, of ours who um, once really explained it uh, really simple in terms of social justice or thinking about justice, it's the right to do what's right, right? It's not the right to do anything you mm. want, it's the right to do what's right. And that mm. begs the question, well, who determines what's right or wrong and for who? And for me, that source is the Bible. Um, and so mm. I think it's important, and I'm going to give some scriptures that I think as believers that we really make sure that the, those of us who are in the social justice fight, that we really meditate and reflect on 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 3, about what's most important, right? Mm. Uh, and that says that uh, for what I receive, I pass unto you is first importance, um, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, right? Um, and so it's the, the gospel, which is the, the most driving, it's the only reason I care about social justice is because of what God's mm. actually me. And so that's my identity is rooted in that. And then I have to think about, well, what does the Bible say about justice? And what are some ways in which I can be encouraged? And, you know, Psalms 33, 5 comes to mind, Malachi 6, 8. But two uh, other verses in Proverbs that I really like to, to meditate on, um, it's Proverbs 21, 15. Um, the NIV reads and says, you know, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers, right? And when I think about mm-hmm. superdoers, it's not a group of people, but I think about systems that are unjustly, right, that unjustly disadvantage certain students. And so Proverbs 21, 15 is always encouraged for me in terms of like just being brave and understanding that when we're sharing certain truths, when we're, when we're having these conversations that you can't get around offending people, you can't get around upsetting people, but, you know, to, to just to understand that that's a part of the process that you're going to get reactions Um and the second verse is, um, again, in Proverbs, when I think about, well, is what I'm doing in line with scripture? Because um, it's really important for me, right? That this isn't like a social gospel, but but it's, w- what am I doing, right? And does the Bible command or instruct us in any way? And so when you look at Proverbs uh, chapter one, verses one through three, uh, Solomon talks about um, why he's actually writing uh, the Proverbs and how it could be applied. And it, and and looking at one uh, or chapter one, again, verses one through three, it says, again, basically he wrote it um, so that we would know wisdom and instruction and understand words of insight. So that we would, ins- uh, so that we would receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness and justice and equity. Like this, this is the mm-hmm. Bible, right? This isn't man. This is God talking about how he expects us to walk in righteousness and justice and equity. And that the Bible can be the resource which guides us to what that actually looks like. And so I try to, um, always kind of meditate on those scriptures so that my identity isn't like lost in this title of being a social justice warrior, but it's actually, it's, it's embedded within Christ and that it compels me to live just as he, as he was just and to love my neighbors as he loved my neighbors. And so, um, yeah. And so those are just a few of the scriptures, uh, but I think it's a great starting point of thinking about, again, what does the Bible say about justice? And there's some things that, you know, you may have to wrestle with because, uh, God ultimately determines what's just, right? Uh, not, mm. and I have to, I have to struggle with that, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I have to submit to what he he sees as just injustice. Amen. I, you know, I knew coming into this, we were we were likely gonna run out of time because I know yeah, how yeah, much yeah, is yeah. in you, yeah. um, and so I, I I did for those listening give Dr. Williams a heads up on this uh, this last final question because I figured we are gonna run out of time, and that question is, you know, we've heard. 
I've heard so much about the work you've done around town related to implicit bias in particular, but other topics related to what we've talked about. And, and, the, and the ask publicly is, will you do some of that for us here at Victory? A little, maybe a part two, or as Mark says, make it a 10-part special. I didn't, I didn't give him a heads up on the 10-part special, Mark, yeah, but yeah. Would, you, would, you, would you come back at some point and do some more of this? I, I, I will. I will. I think it's, it's, I think it's important. Um, so I do believe in racial reconciliation within the church and outside of the church. And so, I, yeah, and so I'm open to that. I think this summer, Victory is doing a great job thinking about reading through the books, different books, such as in July, there's The Color of Compromise, uh, looking at the church's complicity and racism. And I think that conversation is going to open up a door to where I think some of the mm-hmm. um, workshops that I do will be really ripe for it. Um, and, and again, I, I hope that if you're listening, if you're not listening, you would consider joining. Uh, there's several great facilitators who are actually um, going to be leading those book studies. Uh, but I think, uh, yeah, I'm ready to have it. If you are, understand that again. Um, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, as long as you're willing to take the angry emails. Uh, <laughs> Listen, I want to be clean. That agitator you referenced earlier, that, that parallel was a pretty powerful one among everything that you shared yeah, yeah, today. Yeah. So absolutely, absolutely. Anything else you want to share that you've not had a chance to throw out there already today? I know there's a lot more, but I figure we'll let you yeah. get this last word in and I'll pray to close us out. No, I, I appreciate the, the questions. I, I hope that um, with any of the topics that um, Pastor Paul has been talking about, that we don't um, let it die out on Facebook Live or any other medium, but that we continue these conversations uh, in our own homes, in our congregations, that we would actually push each other um, but doing all that within kind of the context of, um, you know, being disciples of Christ and that, you know, Amen. we're asked to, to, to be a part of this reconciliation mission. And again, we can really get into Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 through 18, which God talking about reconciling the Gentiles and the Jews, that the work is actually, it's already been done. Christ did that on the cross, but how do we walk into this reconciliation, right? Um, and, and again, so hopefully this is just one point of a kind of meditating on that and hopefully God stirs your heart. Um, to uh, engage in some of this important work, which is walking into racial reconciliation. Not necessarily that we have to create it because it's been done. That's so good. Uh, I see Dr. EO, uh, Ben, Aaron, there's some other questions that we could not get to, but, yeah, but yeah. we're gonna come back to this and, and have and continue this conversation in a variety of formats. So we see your questions and aren't discarding them by any means, uh, but we wanna do our best to honor time. Dr. Williams, thank you. Thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you uh, for having and, and Heavenly Father, thank you for refreshing us through Dr. Williams today. And I pray according to Proverbs 11 and 25 that you'd refresh him as he continues to refresh us and this community and nation uh, in a time where it's so desperately needed. May we all bear your image well and be your hands and feet such that we can seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. And we can do so well. Open up our eyes, Lord, for how we can bring freedom and bring life and breath to those who are seeking it. Um, and as Joseph referenced, that we do so as a gospel imperative, uh, according and aligned with what you call just. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Appreciate you, Dr. Williams, and appreciate everybody who has joined us. Have a great, great day. And again, happy Father's Day. Yes, thank you.